You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hi. This week we are looking at Lena Wertmuller's 1975 film Seven Beauties. The film stars Giancarlo Giannini as Pasqualino Sittabalese or Pasqualino of the Seven Beauties. He's a man with several sisters that he's trying to keep on the straight and narrow. When one of his sisters gets involved with a pimp, Pasqualino accidentally, accidentally on purpose, murders him and is put on a path of destruction where he goes to an asylum and eventually a concentration camp. We will be spoiling this film as we go along. So if you haven't seen Seven Beauties, please go watch it and come back. We will still be here. So Kat, when was the first time you saw Seven Beauties? I don't think I'd gone much into her work when we did our Elio Petri season for Daughters of Darkness, but it was around that time. And I wish that we had because there's so much crossover, but it was, it was only because of Gian Carlo Giannini. And we talked about Good News, Petri's film on that, that I got into watching the other films. Um, so about five, when was that? Like five years ago? That was five years ago. Yeah. Yeah, about five years ago. I love Italian comedy. <laughs> you know, I'm, so, I'm always talking about it. And I was just really surprised it took me so long to get to it because it's got all the things that I love about Italian comedy, but turned up to 11, especially Seven Beauties, which has to be a funniest. How about you, Sam? I want to say the first time I saw it was eight or nine years ago because I had written this paper on solo for a grad school class. And my professor at the time recommended some other things that he thought I would enjoy. And this was at the top of the list. And I wasn't really familiar with her work at that point, And my mind was just kind of blown. It's one of those movies that 
you can't really prepare yourself for, <laughs> I don't think. This is my first Vert Mueller. I had never seen her stuff before. I didn't even know that she was an Italian director. With that name, I thought she was a German director. And I wasn't sure if I was supposed to laugh at this film, because I think, yeah, there are funny moments, but then there's some really horrible, horrible things going on here. And it's not like life is beautiful, where it's just like, okay, now I'm supposed to laugh, now I'm supposed to cry, and they serve it up on a silver platter for you. This one's subtle-ish with its humor, and just that Giancarlo Giannini's character is kind of ridiculous. And despicable. And despicable at the same time. Yeah, I, I I didn't know what was going on at first with the fractured timeline, so I found that very interesting. But from the get-go, those fucking opening credits with Hitler and Mussolini hanging out and all this war footage, and then this... What would you call it? Like a DJ voice? This whole like, oh yeah. Yeah. It's It's a DJ voice. It's crazy. And I'm like, okay, what am I watching now? This is, this is just madness. The ones who don't enjoy themselves, even when they laugh. Oh yeah. The ones who worship the corporate image, not knowing that they work for someone else. Oh, yeah. The ones who should have been shot in the cradle. Pow! Oh, yeah. I have to say, I loved it. This is going to be my gateway into a lot of her stuff, because I, after seeing this, I was like, oh, wow, yeah. And I love Giancarlo Giannini, so... Being able to see him in his prime here, I didn't realize that he and, and Vertmuller worked so much together. So often. Yeah, and that's maybe why her work is a little more difficult for people to get into, because definitely Seven Beauties, but also things like Swept Away and Love and Anarchy, you don't really know how you're supposed to feel, and I think she really manipulates that. Like, she tries to make you laugh at uncomfortable things, I think not because she's trying to be an edgelord, but because she's trying to point out the sort of social taboos that make people, especially Italians in the 70s, really uncomfortable. And he is just the perfect vessel for that. It's easy to understand why so few people have seen her work, because it's so unavailable. There's only mainly the 70s titles that have had Blu-ray releases, like most of her 60s. And only recently. Yeah, only recently. There's a couple of films you can't find at all. Um, a really 60, I think her first film had a Blu-ray release a couple of years ago, but it's just so hard to find. And it's one of the things about Italian comedy. I mean, all the things you're saying, Mike, are part of Italian comedy from the 60s onwards. This, um, although she does it just so much more in a, in a much more grotesque way. But when it comes to, like, the filmmakers that did the Italian comedy, so people like Fellini, for example, De Sica, you get, you get on one side, there's this accepting of things like La Strada or the neorealist stuff, and obviously La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half and, and, and the early De Sica stuff. But once you get to the 60s, there's like a shut off. Like you can't even get Il Sopasso. Dino Ricci's Il Sopasso has been out of print for fucking years. 
And there seems to be this like weird rejection of Italian comedy, even though, and this is why I love it so much, especially through the 60s and 70s, there was so much incredible transgressive film being made within the comedy. And obviously Seven Beauties is a really good example of that, but it crosses over with people like Marco Ferreri, with people like Elio Petri. And I don't understand it. The only thing I can think of is that comedy is always seen as like somehow lesser or maybe it doesn't cross over culturally, but I've never seemed to have had a problem with the cultural aspects, you know, all the Catholicism and, and stuff like that. But it's so frustrating because there's so many films that desperately need restored but nobody's restoring them because they're just not seen as commercially viable. We've had a couple of Petries, but he remains like so totally, we talked about that on our episode, really totally obscure outside of the genre films that he did, which aren't really genre films, but all the stuff that Latuada was making in the 70s, 60s, 70s. I mean, there's just so much stuff. And you just know it's never going to get a release because... I don't know. Maybe it makes people too uncomfortable or maybe they just don't get it or I, I don't know what it is. It's just not that audience. And um I got really, really into Italian comedy because I was trying to write a book on Italian comedy and I couldn't get any publisher to take it. I'm still going to have to do it at some point, maybe just self-publish it because there's just not a market for it outside of like a, a handful. I'm talking a fucking handful of films like La Dolce Vita and and then everything else and it was this was a huge industry was ignored outside of that and it no longer exists so even if you try and get her films now on on DVD like there's been no UK releases as far as I can tell the Kino set that they did would cost me about 80 pound to import it and that's only three films I think it's four is it four? It's a, I, I'm looking at it from across my living room, and I think it's four. Yeah, we've had no UK release, which I would I would have thought somebody like Eureka maybe would have would have jumped on that one, but no. DVDs are out of print, and stuff is completely missing. So it just makes me so angry because this is the first female director to be nominated for a fucking Oscar, and yet. Where are her films? Where's the lavish box set of her films? We've had, you know, how many Hitchcock box sets now? How many? A million. You know, <laughs> so, I mean, where is the lavish treatment of her films? It's, it, sorry, it just, it disgusts me. It's one, definitely what you were saying that it makes people uncomfortable. A lot of Americans don't expect comedy to be uncomfortable or provocative or thought provoking. They just expect it to be kind of lighthearted and silly, which, you know, anyone who's actually into the genre throughout cinema knows it's a lot more than that. Sometimes these films are hard to market, especially Italian comedies, because it's not what people would expect. Also, there's this big problem with bringing certain European art house movies to English language audiences because people want exactly what Mike was saying earlier, something like Life is Beautiful where everything is spoon-fed to you and you know how you're supposed to feel and you know how you're supposed to react. And I think with Vermeuler's films in particular, 
she purposefully goes against that at every opportunity. And I think Elio Petri has a similar thing going on. So it just makes people uncomfortable. They well, don't it's the, know. Sa- it's the yeah. same with Petri. It's the same. Where are the Marco Ferreri films? Like, oh, where are they? We've had Le Grand Booth. That's about it. Where are they? And it's, it is really frustrating. Like, I get it that it's not Italian comedy is like Commedia d'Italiana is like, it's tragic comedy. But, you know, you guys got mash in the 70s. I thought you were, like, kind of into sure. that now. <laughs> Some like, of us are, but not our mainstream audiences. Most of the criticism that I read of this film was this kind of back and forth about the attitude, you know, is... I mean, people were accusing Bert Mueller as being a, um, a misogynistic director. And it's like, really, the main thing that I was reading is, is... Uh, Pasqualino, is he a redemptive character? Does he learn a lesson through this? He's an Inetto. The Inetto is like, I, I, I should stop paying Jacqueline Reich money because this, this theorist, this writer called Jacqueline Reich, she wrote a book called Beyond the Latin Lover about Marcello Mastriani, which I advise anyone to buy if they want an in to like this era of Italian comedy. And in her introduction or a foundation of her thesis, she talks about the Roman ideals, you know, in art, in ancient Rome, and she talks about the fascist period of film history. Those very early Italian comedies, so like throughout the 30s, they were like rip-offs of Paramount comedies where you'd have like Vittorio De Sica as like the Italian Cary Graham, which I realise sounds really weird, but when when you actually see the films, you see, ah, yeah, I get it now. I get because I always think of him as older, you know, as the film director. And then the fascist period, and then obviously after, straight after the war, we got neorealism, and then that went into rosy neorealism, which was like a semi-comic but it was it was still quite innocent and three films like Il Sopasso and La Dolce Vita this new type of comedy evolved and within that you have this male character which Jacqueline Reich coined the term the inetto the inept man and I am fucking obsessed with the Inetto, right? I've written, mentioned it in every essay I've ever <laughs> written about Italian. Like, I have to get it in. Because once you realise it, you see it everywhere. And I think if you don't understand the Inetto, one of the misunderstandings about Italian comedy is that it's misogynistic especially the sex comedy, but they're not. In fact, what they're doing is like satiring or really taking the piss out of masculinity as hypocritical, as frail, as self-serving. The men who were first typified by people like Marcello Mastriani, Vittorio Gassman was also like an early one. These absolute baby men. I mean, what is the Dolce Vita about? It's about a man having a fucking existential crisis because he just <laughs> want to like grow up and chasing women around. And, you know, it really was like, uh, in a way, and even the sex comedies are like this. Even the stuff, you know, Sergio Martino was making around this time uses the same concept. It uses the Inetto. And I'm fascinated by the Inetto because to me, Italy, this patriarchal Catholic country, 
to take the male form that had always been this idea, I, I guess it comes out of fascism. It was like a kickback at the ideal masculine male of fascism. So they took that and they switched it around to look at how ridiculous men really are. But with films like Seven Beauty, and especially Giancarlo Giannini is like the world's best fucking Inetto. He's the greatest. He's just so he has, good. He clearly <laughs> has the best time doing it. <laughs> yeah, he obviously didn't care about, because a lot of these these guys who played these characters, Marcello is another one. You often think of, you know, Marcello as a big sex symbol, but he'd often allow himself to be really humiliated in the roles, in the roles that he played. And Janini, he like does, which is why I so regret not having seen her films, I think, before we talked about him in Good News, because like where he's getting his cock out and asking his like female co- colleague, is it too small? You know, is it? And he's crying all the time. If you like Seven Beauties, you have got to see Good News. <laughs> yeah. His crying is amazing. But it's all the Inetto and Lena Wurtmuller, sorry. <laughs> I, I think with her work... From what I've seen in the bits I've read, people, they often try and other her as a woman. And they're like, oh, why is she doing this? She's a, she's a woman. But she is actually part of a big tradition in Italian cinema. And so the stuff that she's doing is no different to the stuff her mentor Fellini was doing, Petri was doing, Tori Scola was doing, Latuada was doing, Marco Ferrari was doing. She's actually working inside of a convention. And I'm not going to say all of those films were like wildly feminist. They weren't. But a turning point probably comes in 64 with marriage Italian style, where you have got Sophia Loren sort of her character bringing out the double standards about prostitution and stuff and women come more to the fore so you get quite a lot of writing that tends to take her completely out of context and other her because she is a woman and and say oh well why why are these men like one of the interviews i saw was why are the why are men the main focus of your films that's not very feminist but it's like have you seen these fucking men have you seen these men this is also a problem that applies to plenty of other directors like especially uh, somebody like Catherine Brayat complains about this a lot it's like there's something kind of inherently misogynistic about expecting a female director to only make quote-unquote feminist films or films about women if men can make films about women, why can't women make films about whatever the fuck they want? Why does it have to be this sort of narrow little niche? Oh, it's ridiculous. And I think in using the the Inetto, subversive filmmakers were able to say a lot more about society and how wrong it was and how it affected women. And and Seven Beauties doesn't necessarily do that as much. Seduction of Mimi would be like a good example of Love and Anarchy, definitely. Love and Anarchy, but but it exposes all the shit that women have to live under by showing you how men operate and by using a male character, she's able to go into men's spaces and show how ridiculous and selfish they are and 
how inept they are. I mean, this guy in this film is like, <laughs> fucking accidentally killing someone. You know, he goes in for his big shoot. I mean, he's so good, though. He's so good. And I, I think this is definitely a funniest, but like real, like this actually makes me laugh out loud. It's very difficult for me to imagine this film being as funny without Giancarlo Giannini. If you had somebody who was less hamming it up and less charming and less charismatic, because he's, even when he's sort of made to be disgusting and deplorable, he's still super charismatic and gorgeous. And the crying, though, it's all the crying. The crying crying is my favorite. (laughs) He takes it so seriously. (laughs) This is the first film where I've really seen Mussolini be made fun of so openly. I talked about those opening credits, but then there are moments where uh, Giancarlo is actually imitating uh, Il Duce. And I was just like, at first I didn't understand what he was doing. And then after a little bit, when actually when the guys around him started chanting Duce, 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 I was like, oh, okay, he's doing Il Duce. Italian! Uh, what now? What now? Let us welcome the war! For the virtues it can bring out! He thinks he's Mussolini. He knows of us! Who have the guts to fight? We're making history! Our people are a race of artists and warriors! It's very funny. Our people are poets and heroes. Hey, he's out of his mind. And that is their fame. The challenge this breed poses is a threat to all on earth. I was very surprised that they take on El Duce and that there's that amazing thing. So he manages to, like I said, he, he kills uh, his sister's pimp. And then he has to dispose of the body, which is hilarious. The farting body. And then he ends up getting 12 years in an asylum, I guess it is. But he sat next to this guy who also is getting uh, sent up the river. And Giancarlo has, uh, or Pasqualino, has gotten 12 years. This guy has gotten, what, 28 years. And what was it for? It was basically for a thought crime because he was a, a socialist instead of a fascist. And so it just really points out the absurdity of uh, how it is and this i think it's set what right before the war and then eventually part of the war so it took me a little while too to figure out when the timing was of this film once pretty early on you're behind enemy lines so it's like okay now i know that it's world war ii but i wasn't even sure if i was flashing forward or flashing back which one was the past and which one was the the future or the present and so finally once i got that i was like okay now i understand what's going on but for whatever reason it took me a little while to make those transitions the director said it, and I don't know where the interview was where it, where i'm quoting from but she did say that all even the period films were meant to be applicable to like then like the time she was making them and this was the years of lead you know it was a really difficult time in italy with um and and the thing i think that also really confuses some of the critics that i've read is they can't quite figure out where her politics lie and it was the same with petri which is why i keep comparing them because petri started off a socialist and by the 70s, he got very kind of disenchanted with this idealism 
of Marxism. And so he started, he made the working class go to heaven, which basically showed the unions and the students and the industrialists is all fucking ridiculous. And she does the same thing. It's all left. Anyone in power is ridiculous or exploitative or, so there is a lot of parallel to that. And I don't think you can take them out of that climate. So she's like using the years of fascism really to talk about what was happening in the seventies where you had yeah, you know, just so much shit going on in the seventies. It's such a crazy time in Italian history. I know Sam knows all the bombing dates and who got assassinated. <laughs> I really, at some point, should probably, or or we collectively should do some sort of book on this. It's endlessly fascinating. Jolly, I think <laughs> it's, it's jolly subject matter. It also has interesting parallels. If you watch some of these films now with the current political violence that's going on and all the protests and the ways that people are feeling really frustrated, yes, there are certain cultural things that it could help to know and certain political and historical things, but really this sense of imminent violence and frustration, it makes these worth watching again and again, and especially now. He's supposed to be some sort of Lothario, and that's the way that he dresses and acts. It seems like he's just, you know, there's one woman that he speaks to, uh, I guess, around the end of the first act, and then she comes back at the very end of the film. And, yeah, he is very seductive towards her. He's a spiv, though, isn't he? He's like this, he thinks he's seductive, but he's also kind yes. of ridiculous, which I, I love <laughs> his character at the beginning. When it comes to who he's, he makes love to in the film, he basically rapes a woman on a gurney or tries to, and then he has sex with the commandant of the prison camp or tries to. Again, he's the most ineffectual lover that there is. Pretty much, which I think is what makes him such a and uh, i mean not just this character but giancarlo in general is the way that he plays this inetto type is so physical like it's not just him moaning and complaining about things but it's like the crying and the sort of attempts to be sexual and attempts to be violent and it's like they all kind of fail Oh, he's so wonderful, though. He really is. He, especially when jumping ahead now, but he's also impotent by the end of it as well. It's like he has to endure every single form of humiliation. I really love it when he goes in to kill this guy. They got like this almost Western soundtrack playing and he's having his show. The gun accidentally goes off. And he goes, is that guy like his lawyer or something or his friend? But he basically just gets told off for not like being prepared. And then they go through this whole thing of how the mafia get rid of bodies. And we invented the three person coffin and, you know, so like, and, and even then he can't get that right. He gets very clear instructions because he's such a fucking big head and he can't calm down. He ends up admitting what he's done. And so his lawyer's just like, you're fucked. <laughs> what have you done? And it's in every newspaper. 
his lawyer is so foreign to the idea of confession. He's just like, what, confession? What are you confessing for? We, you know, you totally ruined your legal defense. You shouldn't confess to anything ever. But this is where that climate comes into it because everything was like really contaminated and corrupt in the 70s government, the religious orders. There was just so much corruption. And so she uses. She and, and the mafia were running everything as well. And so she gets that into this and she uses, she uses it in some of her other films as well to like comment on, I guess, like contemporary problems in the Italian society was very, very corrupt because of the economic miracle, which she also pokes at that in a lot of her films, but not this one. But that whole power thing. So it is, I think, applicable to any time that you put it in because power will always be an issue. She just uses like extremes of power. So using the Nazis, using the prison system. And this is just a very sad little man who's desperate to have some, any power. Like he can't control his sister. She's become a prostitute. He can't even like on do an honour killing without ballsing it up. He's put in a psychiatric hospital. I don't think we've mentioned that, have we? He, he fakes madness because he's basically ballsed up by confessing. And his lawyer's like, the only thing that's going to get you off the firing squad is if you say you're mad. So he goes into an institution, tries to rape this woman in there, which is the rape joke. And, and, and the real joke of it is, though, it's like he can't even do that. Like, he can't, like, everything he tries, he just can't do it. He is so pathetic. I think a lot of people would see that scene and think, oh, this is hideous, this is horrible. But, and it's meant to be grotesque. That's part of the convention of that type of of comedy. But it's it's never lascivious. It's it's never mean-spirited in the way that you would expect it to be, I think. No, it's not exploitative of, like, the the quote-unquote victim who you don't ever really feel is a victim because she just starts shrieking at him and she can't, he can't show it. It's, it's just the whole setup isn't really to look at rape or even comment about rape. All it is is to show you how ridiculous this guy is, like how pathetic he is. And to him, failure to perform is like death because he is like this real, um, she often does this, these kind of chest puffy little Italian men who think they're it. And then she totally deconstructs them by the end of the film and just breaks them down. And I, I love that. I, I don't know if she was necessarily being feminist in that way but she was commenting on something that was prevalent in italian society that ridiculous stereotype she was commenting on that but i i I did read she said she never wanted to be remembered or or praised just for being a woman Uh, that that would make her feel sad she definitely has that in common with a number of my favorite female directors who just saw themselves as people who made films that often harshly criticized society, but that weren't specifically about women or for women. And what she's trying to do here is show these extremes of power. And I think it's so interesting to me that there are a number of really kind of transgressive Italian films 
from the mid 70s that do focus on World War II, mostly because they're trying to say something about extremes of power. Like Salo and the Night Porter. The Conformist is is another one. And that's another kind of ridiculous man, but he's not as In a different silly. way. Yeah, <laughs> ridiculous in, in a non-comical way. In quite a nasty way. It does seem to be this out... Yeah, he's more like Iago. This real sort of outpouring comes, doesn't it, at the end of the 60s, and you see a lot of these directors start to use things like World War II to really just comment on the stuff that they, you know... It's interesting, she often gets compared to Fellini, and Fellini had that grotesque thing with the big women. Like, there's, there is a little bit of an influence... But Fellini was quite apolitical. Even when he, like Amarcord, which came out, I think, just before this, is set in the fascist era, but it's almost like a romantic version. He didn't seem to comment either way. He wasn't interested in that. Whereas she seemed much more invested in examining, like, these institutions. And so I think you said earlier, Sam, about Giancarlo being still sympathetic one thing that she did was she showed that it was unfair on everyone. You know, women suffered under that system, but so did the men, because quite often these men have these moral obligations put on them by tradition. And in this case, it's all it all starts because this guy, Pasqualino, feels like he has to defend the honour of his family as the man of the house. So she she showed equally how it hurt men and women, which I think is quite remarkable. But then I guess that then makes it confusing because she's not on this like big agenda to attack men. I was very happy at one point when he's in the asylum, the cross-eyed guy from uh, Salo shows up just Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I don't even yeah, know if he has a line. Exciting. It's so exciting seeing him turn up. He's only in it, like, for a few seconds, though, isn't he? But he's got the look. Like, perhaps they were like, we need someone who looks like they've been in the asylum, and it's like, that dude. No offense to him whatsoever. <laughs> and you mentioned the grotesque, and you mentioned the large women, and Shirley Stoller, I was so happy to see her show up. I loved her so much. She was just wonderful in everything that she was ever in. Some folks might not be familiar with the name, but she was mostly known for The Honeymoon Killers. I grew up watching her as Mrs. Steve on Pee-wee's Playhouse. Pee-wee! Pee-wee! Lock the doors! Shut the windows! Hide! What is it, Mrs. Steve? There's a monster on the loose! Ah! A monster! Ah! 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 Look at that! I don't believe in monsters! Look! Ah! Is it the monster? No, you said the secret word, Mrs. Steve. I tell you, I saw a monster. It, it had a big round eye and two mouths. It was horrible. I have to go warn the other people in the neighborhood. You think Mrs. Steve really saw a monster, Pee-wee? No, there's no such thing as monsters. I'm scared anyway. So she's just wonderful in this as this commandant of the prison camp, the concentration camp. It could go Ilsa very easily, but it definitely doesn't. But every single time she's on screen, she's just electrifying. Yeah, she's incredible. And I think that's one of the things that I love so much about all of Vert Mueller's films that I've seen is most of her characters 
are people who do things that seem very over the top, whether they're crying and tearing their hair or trying to rape someone or (laughs) acting like she does. But she gets such sincere performances from people who just aren't afraid to look ridiculous or aren't afraid to sort of go against type. There's so much about her films that I think is surprising. Even watching a film from the mid-70s now, it's like you still don't really see anything like this. Can we mention Elena Fiore as well? The other larger ladies, the sister, because she appears in a few of her films. She's in my favorite role of hers is Seduction of Mimi, where she plays this large wife of a love rival and just that focus on strange and interesting bodies that is that I think that's the only part that really feels Fellini-esque to me about her work is this obsession with faces and bodies that aren't typical and I do love that but it gives it like a weird sort of carnival aspect I don't think she's just merely a Fellini copyist. Uh, we, and I've seen her written about like that. Oh, you know, she just copied her mentor and blah, blah. I think there's a lot more going on to that. I think she's like Fellini in that she was very intuitive and was more interested in the human experience. So she would show people in very human, absurd situations because life is absurd, not as absurd as Seven Beauties, obviously. (laughs) Well, it can be. (laughs) Or it can be, though, yeah. But She really strove to show a wide range of characters. And so a lot of the time they don't just look and act like people in conventional films which I think is so refreshing and makes them feel so new in a way, even still. It's like you don't have the same sort of thin, conventionally attractive people acting in ways you expect them to act. There is definitely something carnivalesque about it that is just so joyful. Yeah, you never know which way they're going to turn. She'd often take really good-looking actresses as well and put them into, give them grotesque characters, for example. She never, which which is wonderful. But that again was read as being misogynistic. It's like, well, with the with the prison camp commandant with Shirley Stoller's character, it's like, well, that's not very feminist. You've made this woman hideous, you know. The scene when he has to sleep with her, though, is fucking incredibly feminist. She takes that stock, almost Nazi exploitation scene of young, quivering. Oh yeah, I, I think I think she does it on totally on purpose. Yeah, or the Charlotte Rampling in the Night Porter, say, who ha- gets undressed in this very uncomfortable way, who's dehumanized. And you have the male commandant sat looking down. She completely reverses that to put a woman in that spot. And I think that's incredible. I just think that is an incredible thing. It doesn't make me uncomfortable. It makes me want to cheer. Step, go ahead. What did you say? I'm sorry, but did I hear right? You asked me. You asked me to strip. That's a different side of feminism in film especially is being able to show women doing all of these things that they're not usually shown to be able to do, whether that's being grotesque or being sexual or being violent or craving power. 
And that's why I love directors like her and Brayat so much, and Claire Denis also to a different extent, because they spend so much time exploring those things, often in kind of maybe subtle ways where it's like they're not beating you over the head with it. It's not the full point of the film. It's just something included. No, because it's also used for comedy. It's really genius how she does it. So she, because the situation is absurd. This, it's little chicken legs with the hair on them and his little shirt and the fact that he's too exhausted and he can't get it up. And, you know, it is really, really funny. But when you look at it, just how she shows the commandant and how the commandant's got like this real sort of pragmatic, practical view to sex. She's very masculine about it. She's like, come on, we're going to get on with it. And uh, if you can't do it, I'm just going to kill you. So just come on. And she's yawning because he's like, whereas he's thinking about sex in that scene as being linked to desire. So he's having to like conjure up his first love and you know he he normally you see the the man just being very mechanical about it but he she has the woman being very mechanical and it's stuff like that that is so fucking i was trying to think i don't think i've ever seen it played out in that way anywhere else not on those terms and she's not even just sexually aggressive she's almost like She's treating it like a base need and nothing else. It's like somebody who's hungry and makes himself a sandwich. Like, that's her attitude. I love the lighting in that scene, that green light that's uh, going across and just making everything even more grotesque. And her being in power and (laughs) stripping, and she just keeps stripping and stripping and stripping, but but then by the end she still has, like, an undershirt and and men's... Very mannish looking uh, Jackie shorts on. So she is the least sexual object that you could possibly get. And him just, yeah, trying to think about his first love, Fifi, and trying to get it up. And I love when he finally gets it up and is trying to stop her. And when she goes, I want to see her eyes and just like yes! lifts up his lids. <laughs> oh, it, that look on his face is just priceless. It is so wonderful, and uh, I can see why it makes people uncomfortable, though, but I think it's just genius. I don't think she was misogynistic far from it, but she also wasn't sort of doing making an agenda out of feminism either. I don't think you could have made an agenda out of feminism in 70s Italy because she was basically the only female filmmaker. I mean... Italy was deeply misogynistic. I remember Catherine Spack went on Italian television about three years ago and sort of, I think around the time of Me Too, she wasn't doing a Me Too, but she was talking about when she went to Italy as an actress in the early 60s and was working with all these like really big respected names, just how nasty it was, like how misogynistic it was, how the cast and the crew would treat her like shit she lost custody of her kid because she was an actress and that was considered a prostitute. And Wertmuller was like working within that, somehow managed to hold her own within that and made a fucking spaghetti western, <laughs> which is like, which we haven't mentioned. It wasn't like France where a female voice was starting to emerge or America by the early 70s. Feminist filmmakers are starting to emerge. That wasn't in Italy at all. So I think she had to be much more subversive about that. 
rather than sort of coming out and, and having an agenda about it because I can't imagine how difficult it was for her to work in that field. Just the fact that she was there alone is an incredible thing. We haven't mentioned Fernando Rey, who is one of his two friends at the concentration camp. It took me a little while to even recognize Fernando Rey because the makeup on all of these guys, they just look horrible. Oh my God, I can't look at his makeup in this. It's so horrible. (laughs) It's really bad. But the thing that really gets me is how there's this white stuff everywhere. And I'm pretty sure that we are to imply that all of this white stuff that is everywhere is ash from the dead bodies. Because this is one of the most harrowing presentations of a concentration camp, just all of these dead bodies every place. And the guys who are in charge of moving the bodies from one place to another or throwing them into the crematorium. I can see, Sam, why your professor recommended this along with to watch with Salo, because, man, it is really gut-wrenching. And, yeah, everybody just looks beat to shit. And, again, it's completely unemotional when we see people moving bodies and how the officers are. It's the same as the sex scene. They're just bored and indifferent, which I think is, in a way, even more powerful than something that sets out to be overly shocking like Sallow, is the the fact that they're just obviously so desensitized to it. Just so like and and all the people all these friends in the camp, you know, when they get a chance to be shot, they're like, me, you know, let me go. I just can't take it anymore. Those aspects of it are so powerful. Fernando Ray's death scene and and Francesco, uh Piero de e- I'm butchering that, I'm sure. But when he sees Pedro die and then has to kill Francesco, and he's doing this so that not everybody in the camp or everybody in his barracks will die, he has to choose six people to be killed. Otherwise, everybody dies. Oh, man, it is just one of these horrific Sophie's Choice type choices where it's just like, wow. You know, I was talking earlier how people were saying like, oh, his character never changes. He's not affected by this stuff. And I have to say bullshit because the final shot of the film, when his mother is there like, oh, you survived. And he's just like, yes, I'm still alive. And I think that's the last line of the film is I'm still alive. And then you get that shot of his face. Did they watch the same film? I, that's what I'm, I wonder. I'm confused. What, so, I, so I think <laughs> Did they bring the house lights up too soon? Well, this is something that I find really frustrating, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it while I was finishing my World War II book, is people want to be spoon-fed things. Like, they need the melodramatic music that tells you this scene is sad, and this character is having all of the sad feelings. And something like this is so much more nuanced and complicated, and I think speaks to this idea that when people are put in these horrible situations, often this thing takes over where their brains run on survival instinct. And so they're able to do things that are quite horrible, because that allows them to survive. That's the only reason that they're surviving. But once they're through the ordeal, it's like, at what cost did you survive? And When people like Hannah Arendt wrote about stuff like this after the war, like she was attacked. She got death threats. 
for suggesting that Jews were complicit in certain things or perpetrated certain things in the concentration camps, like people in positions of power within the camps. But she herself was a Holocaust survivor. So it's like this idea that tragedy, especially World War II, but I think just tragedy in general doesn't exist in this easy to understand black and white scale is very challenging for people. And when you have films that are like Seven Beauties, where everything just seems really horrible, and there's no kind of easy answer or scenes where it's like, oh, yes, here's how we're supposed to feel. And here's, you know, the heroic character doing the right thing. He's the opposite of heroic and always does the wrong thing. But it doesn't make the end any less gutting. And so I just like what you just said, Kat, I don't understand the reviews for this film in particular. It's like, who are these people? (laughs) What movie did they watch? I don't get it. I think he, Pasquarino, he's not a bad person. He is just someone who tries to get by and he's someone who tries to survive, but he's not someone without feeling. I think sometimes he thinks he's even trying to do the right thing, like with the sister and everything. But he's just a bit rubbish at everything. And so when he goes to the Commandant, he is just basically trying to save his own skin and he's punished for that because that's when he's made, oh, we'll put you in charge. So if he was this horrible person, he would have got into that, but he doesn't. He tries to resist it and and it's that or, or he dies and he's not the hero. And maybe it's that he's not the hero, but... You know, not everyone was a hero. I think a lot of people had to do what they they did to survive. And so it's a lot more complex than that. But I think it's quite clear at the end that he's changed. Like he's not the same person anymore. And you really feel for him. You just really feel bad, even with his friend. His friend wants to go in and he still doesn't put his friend's name in there. He can't bring himself to do it even though he's asked, uh, Fernando Del Rey's character. What sort of brain you'd have to have to not kind of notice, you know, the look of like pure existential angst on his face when he says, I'm alive at the end, which is like a pinch to the gut. She has that in most of her films, at least all of the ones I've seen. There is just this sense, like you feel gutted by the time the film is over. (laughs) The Janini ones, without giving spoilers for them, all kind of end on the same note of a guy just being left bereft and completely dismantled and sometimes sobbing or screaming after being completely... Those films in in particular with him, which is why they're my favourites of hers... Because they, I don't know, it's him. It's like Sam said, it's it's him. It's something about him. You kind of want him to survive and you want him to just get something right. And like, he never get like, she denies his characters like every single time. And so you're just left at the end of the film. <laughs> like you get lots of laughs along the way, but you're left just feeling like, oh, poor Giancarlo. <laughs> But I think it also speaks to his really incredible talent. And he's just such an amazing actor. Like, it's hard to think about 
actors who could convincingly do this sort of wide range, very physical performance, and who would also let themselves be systematically humiliated throughout an entire series of films. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, God, he, he just really goes through it in, in every single film. He is just, I, I think he's such a wonderful presence. Though. I love him so much. He's so there's just something about like like you said, Sam, like a charisma or something. He's not like the Lino Banfi who I love. Like Lino Banfi was like the Italian Danny DeVito before Danny DeVito. <laughs> He's in shitloads of sex comedies, and his stock character always is the lead was the unfortunate man who would just fuck up all the time and uh, he'd often be married to people like Barbara Boucher, which seemed inexplicable. But he'd always be ridiculous. But from the minute you saw him, he looked funny. Like he's, his character, like he's really short and dumpy and going bold. And, you know, that was his thing. Giancarlo isn't like that because he is sexy as well, but she kind of strips him of that. But he's not like ugly or anything. You know, he is a beautiful man. So. But she makes him look as fucking ragged as possible in this movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> With his little hat on. When he gets that little hat in there. I love his little hat in the, in the, in the hospital. She gives him such extreme under eye circles in this movie that it's like, I think he has them naturally a little bit. But if you watch this back to back with something like Swept Away, he looks like two totally different people. Oh, yeah. Well, we were talking about uh, Sophia Loren earlier, and to see the way she made Sophia Loren look, she doesn't look like the same person at all. It's strange because she looks a lot like the woman that wa- that she normally wor- worked with in like S- Swept Away and Seduction of Mimi, um, Marangela oh, Melato. Okay, yeah. yeah, she almost can make Sophia Loren look like her. I was going to say about Giancarlo, is it Love and Anarchy where he's got that crazy freckle face? Yes. 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 <laughs> it is. And just is, mad is Seduction of Mimi the one where he has the similar sex scene in that like shack by the by the beach? There's an amazing sex scene in that one with a large, very large woman with a very large bottom. And and it's framed. <laughs> I it's, wish. it's like a companion piece to Seven Beauties. <laughs> she she frames it almost in a fisheye, so the woman's backside fills up the whole front of the shot. And Giancarlo looks about six inches tall on this bed, clutching this slight little blanket. It's one of the best sex scenes I've ever seen. It's, it's, so it's not good. erotic, but like the way it's shot and just how funny it is. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be right back after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. 
It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey, do you like movies? Of course you do. You're listening to Mike White's phenomenal podcast, The Projection Booth. I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie-loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards. In 2016, is a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films, from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself, talking about his friendship with John G. Abelson. And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and of course, SoundCloud. Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and I'm the host of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, a new podcast where I have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. I was scared because I thought, oh, what am I doing? Like, here I am selling my soul. But when I realized what the movie was, it's like, I'm in. Let's do, let's make this wonderful movie. The freedom of ad-libbing and letting things happen in the moment with Stephen Trask, let's write something that involves stand-up comedy drag punk rock i was so rebellious and precocious i guess the definition of gay to me is freedom women gave the show its life i feel like well, because it's also a bit of a hunk fest you guys are right, hot true. as hell you are too kind that was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago it's a no holds barred talk with iconic creators and performers it's not white people it's not i hate white pe- it's dear white people it's how you start a letter the whole climax of the show is a sex scene between melchior and venla and i remember feeling personally self-conscious about never having been with a woman in any way shape or form <laughs> i'm always thinking about the audience make them feel make them laugh and make them cry i mean that's as simple as it is for me i had been not wanting to be a part of the film it was clear in the edit that i had to you know really reshape it so the film really told me what it needed to be cinema is an empathy machine and and it sort of allows you to see yourself in people's faces that you normally wouldn't see humanity in i get emotional just talking about it and the tea is definitely spilled david don't edit anything of this out (laughs) no no they don't want to hear all the charming stories they want to hear the ugly gory relationship that jim and i have (laughs) we're cutting that part out by the way and with guests like john cameron mitchell christine bashan laverne cox jonathan groff justin simeon jim fall miss coco peru rachel mason jeffrey schwarz H.P. Mendoza and fabulous queens Shangela, Eureka, and Bob the Drag Queen. I'm sweating the house down. Oh, mama. You never know what's going to come up. You know me, I'm so big and strong that Eureka and Bob actually hide behind <laughs> me and I protect She them. is quite the chihuahua, mama. She does pop up. I was up. like, wait, should we have had security the whole time? <laughs> I think they think I'm the security, bitch. It's season one of The Outcast, presented by Outfest, premiering in the summer of 2020. Hope you can join us. 
All right, we are back, and we are talking about Seven Beauties. And Kat, you mentioned that Vert Mueller did a spaghetti western, and I am super curious what that was. Oh, it was Bella Star. What's the full title of it? Um, the Story of Bella Star? I've never seen that one, actually. I have to admit, I've never seen it. Me neither, and I'm dying to. And what kind of lady was wanted for horse dealing and bootlegging? That was no lady. That was Bell Star. She directed it under a male pseudonym as well. Really hard to get some of those 60s films of hers. There's another one that I've I've had a copy of it, an Italian copy. I think it was like a, maybe a like third film or no, no, it wasn't. It was it was very. She did the lizards. Let's talk about men. Oh yes, which was like there was a another Italian comedy called Let's Talk About Women, which was more traditional, and so hers seems like a, a like a reversal of that. But I've never been able to get subs for it, and I, my Italian doesn't go beyond um, Vaffanculo, which comes up a lot in these films, and Ayuda, which, because I watch a lot of Power, Power, and that's about... Anyone who's seen, like, three or four Jalo films should know what Ayuto means. <laughs> <laughs> but, so I don't know, um, and... I don't know what's going on in it, which is really... It's only really when you get to the seduction of Mimi in 72 that that little bubble of films in the early 70s seemed to have had some some home video treatment. But it's like, where where is the rest of it? Where is the earliest stuff? Or was it just because it was more considered more commercial? Because she always considered herself working as a, in commercial cinema. And... Uh, the comedies that she did were kind of commercial because there was, like I said, precedent for this. It was like an established tradition and other filmmakers were doing it. I know it seems odd to us outside of Italy, some of their editorial choices of <laughs> the story. But, yeah, I don't understand. I'd, I'd be dying to see. I think she did these two other films in the 60s that appear to be completely something about mosquitoes. Oh, yeah. Rita, it's Rita the Mosquito and Don't Sting the Mosquito. I'm dying to see them. But Yeah, you can't get them anywhere. Like, anywhere. But it's, it, and it's so strange because if you think about even, like, to your point about her being a commercial filmmaker... Even by the late 70s, you've got stuff like A Night Full of Rain, which co it's Giancarlo again, but with Candace Bergen. And like, it's a US co-production. So it's like she was making bigger films. I don't know why she didn't catch on. Like, I just, I don't understand it. I watched a really good documentary about her called, well, some of it was really good. Other times I was like, okay, I want to speed ahead, but it's called uh, Behind the White Glasses. I, but we can't get that in the UK anywhere, and I've been dying to see it. It was so tough for me to find. We were talking on another podcast about like off-brand streaming services, and this one is, uh, I guess it's not that off-brand. I guess if you buy Blu-rays and you get the digital copy code that everything's on voodoo i think it is and yeah. this was a voodoo on voodoo so i'm like all right that's the only place i could find it and, and it's relatively new isn't it yeah yes. it should be out there easily findable yeah, but it no it's had so like very not. limited release in the u.s from all i can see and that's it it's like she doesn't exist in the uk there are all these later films like i don't know if 
Kat, if you've had a chance to see Kamora from the 80s, no. which is see, like... See, uh, some of the later films I haven't seen either. Yeah, I'm I'm dying to see those too. I just wish they were easier to get a hold of. It seems like a rape revenge drama with a serial killer. Like, it's even hard to find, like, full descriptions of some of these. It is. It's, sh- it's shocking, especially now. Like, especially, like, the last few years. There's been so much about f- women filmmakers and raising up women filmmakers. And there's been all this talk in the Oscars and all this talk everywhere about, you know, oh, we need to look at the women f- filmmakers more. And, you know, they've been so neglected. And you get, like, Italy's perhaps most important female filmmaker. And, and, and for world cinema, you know, to be nominated for an Academy Award, which is the thing I love, you know, she, She's often sort of, you know, thought of as lesser to the bigger talents, whom all all of them I love. But yet she kind of made that international jump when uh, a few of them were really flagging. But it's like, why is she so absent from all these conversations? Why? Because what we were saying earlier, she doesn't tell conventional, digestible, safe stories. People don't know what to do with her films. Which is just shows how typical it is, like how what we expect from women as filmmakers. I guess she can't be. It's like Petri in a way. Petri is a hard sell because he is impossible to tag or market. Which makes him great. Yeah. Well, to us anyway. (laughs) And it's like, how do you, I guess, how do you sell? If she had been making like rape revenge films or these dramas about everyday women's lives, then maybe, you know, we would have had a huge thing. You know, all her films had been about Giancarlo's wives, <laughs> long-suffering wives. Then maybe she would have got the focus. But it, I just think it's absolutely disgusting because her work is, you know, I've seen a lot of Italian comedy and it is some of the best, like total top-tier stuff. On a par, you know, and it sells some of the stuff that is considered top tier as well because it was just, she is using established tropes, but she's just so fresh and subversive in how she uses them. The documentary I would recommend, though there are some just a little boring parts, and then also some of the subtitles are white over really white, black and white films, which made it nearly impossible. But it was interesting too, like, we're talking about the American films. As soon as Harvey Keitel shows up being dubbed in Italian in one clip, I'm like, wait a second, what's going on here? But yeah, he worked with her, I think, a couple times, it sounds like. But uh, I would recommend that. I would also recommend a book by Grace Russo Ballaro called Man in Disorder, which is really like the thing that Vert Mueller was so on about was man and disorder. She even talks in the documentary about how I think it was like the French Legion wanted to give her a medal and they asked what she wanted on it. And she said, man and disorder. And she said, they never called me back after that. This Bellaro book is fantastic. It's very thin and it's way overpriced on Amazon. It's $160 right now. So don't pay that. Uh, find it for cheaper. Get it from the library. It's much better that way. And yeah, it's really well done. She did a, a 
great amount of research, and it really concentrates on these early films. We talked about that box set earlier, which is like, what, Swept Away, Seduction of Mimi, Love and Anarchy, and Seven Beauties, and it really concentrates on that period of time. So I, I highly recommend that. Start, oh, yeah. Can we also mention she was married to Enrico Job? He was like a set and costume designer, not Giancarlo, <laughs> Giancarlo Giannini's. I saw one in one interview, your oh, husband, no. Giancarlo. Really? Oh, my yeah. God. Well, they work together, so naturally they must be married. Yeah, because how would she have managed, you know, without having a big star husband? They definitely talk about job in that documentary and show all of these little miniature versions of sets that he decorated oh. and all these beautiful costumes that he designed. It was amazing. We didn't really talk about them, but the sets and the sets in, like, not just the sets when she's losing, like, swept away when she's using locations or sets are incredible in all of her films. And I'm really all about, like, the visual. I love costumes. I love little details in sets. And her films are like a sweetie jar to me because there's... And they are, again, there's some similarities to Fellini in there because his sets design was often crazy. She's not as avant-garde as Fellini, but just all the little details that sh- that, that are in there. Seven Beauties was the first of her films that I saw, and it was a couple years, probably until around when we did that Petri series, like you were saying, until I saw some more of them. It's easy to love a sort of standalone film for itself without thinking a ton about the director's overall career. But when I saw Love and Anarchy, the set details and the costume design, I was like, oh, this this woman is, <laughs> she knows. Yeah, I think it was the same for me. I saw Seven Beauties and then for whatever reason, didn't go any further. And then it was only because I was like deliberately, you know, making a concerted effort to like get hold of all this Italian comedy and watch it. That I got into the other stuff and then I remember seeing Seduction of Mimi and just being so gutted that I hadn't seen it when we did the Petri because there were so many parallels to just in that one without giving too much away. You've basically got this guy who he is a factory worker it's, it's got a lot of parallels to Seven Beauties in a way. He's a factory worker who keeps accidentally finding himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and gets inadvertently involved with the mafia and just it is so ridiculous. And he means well, but he's also kind of um he's kind of self-absorbed and a bit selfish as well. But he's not like a downright horrible person, even though he does horrible things. His ridiculousness in that just reminded me so much of the Petri film. When in the Petri film, and I'm quite sure now after seeing the others, that's why he was cast for that. Because in that film, he plays a journalist who he's married to 
Is it Inella Moody or some someone like that? Or he's got a very young, sort of glamorous feminist wife. He won't yes. cook his dinner, and his co-worker, <laughs> female co-worker, won't sleep with him. And he's he like marching around. <laughs> he's crying, <laughs> and, and, and I'm quite convinced. Now. Yeah, crying, <laughs> showing his cock and going, "What's wrong with it? Is it too small? Too like, he's, Why isn't he's, anyone interested?" He's <laughs> so it's so fun. That one's never had any sort of decent release but it was on youtube at one point with subs amazingly but i'm quite convinced now that's why he was cast for that role because it is very similar to the stuff that he does in mimi in loving anarchy's not quite as bad but he's got that ridiculous freckle face yeah he's ridiculous in other ways and the crazy hair and swept, swept away. away. Oh my god! Talking of people thinking misogynist. See, I think swept away is fucking hilarious. It's hilarious. It also has so many genuinely erotic scenes. It does, and um, and again, it's it's a good parallel to Ferrari with La Cagna because it's similar story. I saw some people recently going absolutely nuts over that film Overboard with um, Goldie Horn and uh, like how misogynist, oh, this woman falls overboard and this guy makes her his sex slave. And I remember seeing that when it came out and finding it mildly amusing. I haven't seen it since the 80s, but... I don't think I've ever seen that one. Oh, well, Goldie Horn is this posh, stuck-up cow. And I wonder if it was influenced by Swept Away. It sounds she like it. She is on a boat. Oh, and actually now I'm saying this out loud I'm like hmm it's uh, the same film the carpenter <laughs> she's rude to him she falls overboard and loses her memory so the whole st- and he claims her as his wife because she has amnesia as his way of getting revenge and makes him look after, makes her look after his like five kids because he's like a widowed dad and he lives on a farm he's like a total hick um, and they were so Outrage! This this bubble of people recently. I don't know if Overboard's been re-released or something, but I saw some backlash. I think it's getting remade. Maybe has it been remade? Why would well, you remake I know, it? So it's I kind of swept. Fun. Well, Swept Away was remade. Oh, oh god, yeah. don't not the fucking Madonna one. Yeah, With Madonna, <laughs> I've never seen it, and I never want to. But the fact <laughs> that it exists is hilarious. Yeah, it was remade. <laughs> sorry, it was remade with. Uh, Ingenio Derbez and Anna Ferris. So that what? Yeah, Overboard? yeah. From eighty. Sorry, twenty eighteen. Yeah. Why? What are the odds? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what well, are the, the odds that that we would get both a swept away remake and wow. an Overboard remake? <laughs> it's mildly amusing Overboard, but we're not. Yeah, that that was probably where it was. They were probably reacting to the remake. Then there was some. But I was looking at the comments thinking, you need to see Swept Away. If you yeah, think you'll Overboard be horrified. Is, we should do a Swept Away like a sweet romantic comedy. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. We, we have to do a Swept Away episode at some point and talk about the remakes. <laughs> no. <laughs> I had no idea that, um, that, that Seduction of Mimi led to Which Way is Up, the Richard Pryor comedy. I haven't seen Which Way is Up in I don't know how long, so now I need to go back and rewatch that and watch it Seduction is? of Mimi. Yeah. In what way? Vert Mueller is credited as screenwriter, and it says based on an Ooh. original story by. Wonderful. That's amazing. Yeah, she See, she's everywhere. She's so she influential. 
even on Hollywood. <laughs> she's still around. She's 92 yeah. years old. And unfortunately, when she passes away, so many people are going to glom onto her like, oh, my God. Yeah, we've been a fan of hers all this time. And Liars. Yeah, exactly. And it's like. <laughs> yeah, it's like, where were you? Where were you asking for the fucking disc? Where were you buying the disc? Create a market then. If Marty stands up and says, I was a fan, I'll be like, yeah, okay, I understand you were. But th- oh, if yeah. if sure suddenly all these, sure these other people other. – yeah, Oh, well, he was in the documentary for sure. And it was funny because he uh, was like, yeah, I didn't know what to think of her stuff when I first saw it. And I was glad. I was like, okay, good. I'm glad I'm not the only <laughs> one. <laughs> the first time you see one of her films, even if you know the plot description and maybe you've seen some Fellini or something, but I feel like – you really are just surprised from one scene to the next and there's no way to know what to expect or like how it's going to make you feel. Absolutely. Which is is great. What what cinema should be about really. I think the thing about Italian comedy in general, not just these films is it's so unmined that like, even for me, you just went headfirst into this huge mission to, like, for instance, get my hands on every film that Marcello Mastriani had been in, and I have, still haven't watched them all, but... <laughs> and and just things like that, it constantly surprises me. Even when I think I've seen it all, I will discover somebody else and a whole another whole director with a load of stuff. And I think for film fans, where it's getting harder and harder to find fresh old stuff, because so much is easily available now, it it's like a, it's there beckoning you like a little journey like come on in because there's so much to discover it's just if people could just get beyond their i guess their like initial idea about what constitutes an italian comedy because the one that i get a lot is all oh, they're not very funny though or and it's all based on assumption or they're sexist or you know, oh, culturally they don't cross over because I don't think that's true, especially on the like art house end where you have these directors talking about these big universal themes. So they, they are, I don't think you have to understand anything about the history to understand like a character being pushed to the brink and like how absurd it is. So it's like, it's there. And um, I think everybody listening to this episode should go out afterwards and buy all the Wurtmuller DVDs or Blu-rays or Sam will come round and um, burn your house to the ground. (laughs) Wow. I haven't made that threat in a while. No. It's genuine. Create a market and then we might get more. They'll be like, oh, these these, these Blu-rays are selling really well. I mean, nothing like the threat of arson to spice up (laughs) your life a little bit. Well, normally this is the place where I say let's take a break and play a preview for next week's show. But next week, I'm talking about a bunch of silent films. So I could play some music or maybe some talking heads, maybe Orson Welles talking about how great Buster Keaton is. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. And it's my great pleasure to introduce this evening Buster Keaton. He was, as we're now beginning to realize the greatest of all the clowns in the history of the cinema. But I'm not going to. So next week, we're going to talk about Buster Keaton films. Prepare yourselves because it is 
quite a long discussion. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Sam and Kat. So, Sam, what has been keeping you busy lately? One thing that is relevant to this episode is I wrote a book about World War II movies called The Legacy of World War II in European Art House Cinema, which does have a big section on Vertmuller and Seven Beauties in particular. It should be out later this spring from McFarland. And Kat, how about you? What's going on in your world? I've just been doing a lot of stuff for Patreon recently on Cat Ellinger's Confessions of a Cine Slut. It's Satanic Feminism Month this month because it's Women's History Month. So I thought I'd. Isn't all feminism satanic? Hopefully. Well, there's going to be a lot of films in it. (laughs) If you're doing it right. Yeah, if you're doing it right, With the women, yes. Um, and I'm also launching like a little YouTube spot for the people that aren't on Patreon. Um, just like a little regular thing to do with Diabolique magazine, which I should mention, we've just had a whole new upgrade to our website. So go on over and check that out because it's looking all nice and snazzy now and uh, and quite posh. So we got some exciting stuff coming out on there. But yeah, check me out on the Patreon for all the satanic feminism. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps a projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening Christopher Media let's make some noise